The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. We'll just do a quick recap of what we've been talking about. We're still in the middle of the section of the book talking about shame. Uh, And the last chapter spent most of the time talking about the way that shame works in cultures that use that particular uh, cultural tool. And so we describe this tool as a tool that enforces and reinforces key cultural values. And in the last chapter, and again in this chapter, the authors point our attention specifically to that word, cultural values. Because the the gut reaction for us as Western individualists is to hear shame and to immediately look for ways to get away from that. We want to feel not that or experience not that. We don't want to enter into any kind of discussion with how shame is supposed to work or how shame can work or any of those things. Shame is always bad, always negative. We want to get away from it. But instead, what the authors want us to see is that it's not the shame itself that is negative, but rather what values the shame is trying to enforce that are negative. So what we're being invited to do is to look at the core values that are being reinforced and then to assess whether this shame is happening in a positive way or if it's happening in a negative way. Is this something that restores people to the community or is this something that pushes people away? Is this something that makes people simply feel bad uh, or feel like they are less than the people who are around them? Or is this something that says uh, this kind of behavior is outside and we want you to come back into the inside, right? So it's, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next chapter because the next chapter is all about boundary markers and how cultures uh, in various times and places use boundary markers to establish uh, who is who is inside and who is outside and and what that means. Uh, but of course, honor and shame are examples of what those boundary markers are. Just like in our culture, uh, things like justice and guilt and status, uh, all of those things are markers that show whether or not you belong or don't belong to a particular community or a group of people. So my question for us as we are reflecting over what we've read over the last several weeks is why does understanding shame matter when we're reading the Bible? I'm not looking for hard and fast answers just yet. Just think about it for a second. Why does understanding how shame works matter when we're reading the Bible? You had something? Because understanding their punishment and understanding the side of God whenever he's... So like understanding both sides and also kind of understanding the Bible at the same time. Mm-hmm. It helps us to see things from a different perspective, right? Yes. 
Yeah, and that's really important when we're reading scripture, to, to look at things from a different perspective, to recognize that this is something that is written by people in a different language, in a different culture, in a different part of the world from ours, and to pause and to try to give them grace enough to let them explain their world without simply, you know, doing kind of like we do in Western culture where we just automatically say, oh, well, that's wrong, and then we judge it and we dismiss it. We don't want to dismiss it. We want to sit with it for a, for, for a little while and kind of mull it around a little bit. See, why why is this happening? Why are the authors talking this way? Why do they tell these stories? Why is this happening? So we could understand more about God. Yeah. Yeah, it helps us to understand who God is and the way that God relates to us, right? Because the context that salvation happens in is a community, the mm -hmm. church, and communities are built on relationships and the way that these relationships were, ex were expected to function is by using these boundaries and these reinforcements and these and, and these sanctions to to encourage behavior rather than simply exist in a binary binary innocent or punished mm -hmm. so it's, it's a necessary context to actually live the life that we're supposed to be living mm -hmm. it also brings better understanding and then application for us in our cultural context so if if we can understand the culture that god chose to most fully reveal himself in uh, and this was one of the ways that that culture operated uh, and that's not ours mm -hmm. so by understanding that we can go okay this is what these as Greg was saying, how these relationships are playing out. This is why these people do things in this way. When we think that doesn't make any sense. Well, if we can understand the why, we can understand the principles behind, we can then apply those principles in our context. Mm -hmm. The way it plays out will be different, mm -hmm. but the underlying why is we can more rightly get to translate across time. Right. What do we gain as Christians, as uh, disciples of Jesus, as readers of the Bible? What do we gain by understanding how shame works in the biblical context better? I think we gain a better understanding of what God is trying to tell us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some. I think that there are some assumptions, kind of like. The, the, the example that I keep coming back to is when we talk about the grace and faith language. That, that sometimes the assumptions that we make about what's happening in Scripture, we just sort of lump everything in together. So when we're reading the Old Testament, we, we hear that there's a prohibition against something. And instead of saying, is this about worship or is this about a particular group or is this about ritual purity or is this about sin or or is this a violation of covenant there are all of these different categories that an original reader would understand but for me when i sit down and read the old testament i just sort of lump everything in together there's just either sin or not sin and so then it leads me to misunderstand why 
the Bible takes things so seriously? Why does it actually matter that you're, uh, you know, sowing two different kinds of crops side by side? Uh, you know, who cares? Uh, because I don't understand that world. And so, and, and if I don't understand that, then maybe it doesn't matter what the tabernacle is made out of. And maybe it doesn't matter that, uh, you know, that there are walls that are put up around it. Or maybe it doesn't really make any difference uh, you know, who you decide to marry and, you know, all of these questions that we, we just sort of lump everything all in together, right? Rather than, ra rather than saying, well, how can, reading this well allows me to, to hear things in, in a new and a fresh way. And it helps me to set aside some of those cultural blinders that I have, maybe. Also, it can help us set aside some of our received theological blinders. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, in so many ways, we're still rehashing a lot of the same questions, a lot of the same issues uh, from the Protestant Reformation mm -hmm. in our context. And then we're still taking from the Enlightenment era mm -hmm. and moving that forward. And so you have a lot of these debates within theological circles of, like, for instance, with salvation, is it uh, with, with Christ's uh, death and then resurrection is it about penal substitution or mm -hmm. Christus Victor you know, as if those play off of one another as if it can only be one or the other mm -hmm. or some third one that both sides are denouncing at the same time mm -hmm. and maybe having a better understanding of this can take at least some of those questions and go those are the wrong questions mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what the answers to those questions are those aren't the questions that should be asked mm -hmm. I guess in reading the chapter, it hit me in a new way that uh, to appreciate Jesus spoke in parables and mm -hmm. stories that were all relationship oriented mm -hmm. and not so much what in our Western linear kind of thinking, mm -hmm. logical. It was not doing systematic theology. Yeah, systematic theology. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, and so it's a, it's a better place to work from. Yeah, it has to do with, 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 you know, local economics, the kind of economics that happen between two neighbors, yeah. uh, you know, so-and-so loaning somebody money, so-and-so hiring the guy who, who lives on the street with them, uh, you know, or domestic things, what, what's going on inside a house or agrarian Going to secular themes, courts. Right? Go, yeah, it's like all of these, all of these things are like just day-to-day -day life that Thank they you. experience. And he was able to insert kingdom values mm -hmm. in that context rather mm -hmm. than explain it in sort of on on the one hand I ask what do we gain from from understanding this but on the flip side of that what do we stand to lose if we don't pay close attention to shame and shame language in 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 our reading of the Bible we risk losing a lot of the different ways it can speak to the way that we assume relationships are and should always be everywhere Mm -hmm. And we lose that ability to to be called to something new and better than what we simply create as a human culture. Mm -hmm. I think we could also lose a lot of the ways that it shows that God has acknowledged and worked within the world as it is. Mm -hmm. So not some idealized utopia, not yeah. or not some, you know grim, dark, everything is bad and evil and, and humans are inherently bad. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, there's 
there's actual reality. Everything is, everything within the created order is inherently good. Mm. A lot of it has been twisted off purpose. And so how does God act within that and how does that play out for us in his actions and in the times where it seems like he's not acting? Mm -hmm. And if we miss out on the shame language, we miss some of that. Or we'll at least misunderstand some of that. Which means that then we could take that misunderstanding and carry it forward into how we interact with others. Mm -hmm. And that can have, you know, damaging, twisting off course consequences. Mm -hmm. I think along with that, like, it makes everything, the story seem flat or shallow. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you read... You read the, the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, and if you only see it from the, pers- the, the, the way I first heard the story and believed it, it's, it's just a very, it's a nice story, and it has a nice moral, morale. I can't speak either. <laughs> You're welcome. But, but it's, just, it's just sort of at a surfacey level. Yeah. And there's not depth mm-hmm. to it. And when you read the, and you, when you read with that relational language and shame-based language, you also see there's these layers. Mm-hmm. It's not just the prodigal son; it's the eldest son. It's mm-hmm. primarily maybe the eldest son. You know, like a whole like when I first understood that, made the whole story just more interesting. Mm-hmm. And less, even let's let's point out in the book locating that within the the larger narrative of Luke's retelling of the life of the disciples and saying, look at this thing that happened between Peter and the rest of the group. And then Jesus tells a story about things being lost and things being found. And it's almost as though he's telling the story in a way so that Peter can see himself in that role of the older brother and that it's his job to, to go and, and create restoration in that community. Even that way of that, that kind of perspective doesn't occur to me because I think for me, I I'm so used to reading just, you know, following whatever the heading is for the passage. I'm like, this is the prodigal son. And it just exists in this sphere of the prodigal son, not a story that Jesus told to a specific group of people in a specific context for a reason. What was that reason? Why was he telling the story? Well, I want to start tonight by looking at um, looking at the very beginning of the story. So I'm going to read from Genesis 2 and then into Genesis 3. And I want us to listen for language that's related, not just to shame, but I want us to look at language on all of the points of our pyramid. So remember, we put the pyramid up. The book only discusses uh, shame culture versus guilt culture. And we spent some time the last couple of weeks talking about that That um, ethnographers and, uh, and, and social scientists also point out that there is a, a third way that culture understands this this dynamic this this tension and that's through fear culture so i want us to to pay attention to all three of those ways that culture uses these particular tools to enforce and reinforce values so i'm starting at let's see let me start at verse uh, 15 this is in chapter 2 the lord took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and to keep it and the lord commanded the man saying You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, 
It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the, Lord, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of any tree, any of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me, to, whom you gave to be with me, gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this thing that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And God said to the servant, to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and the beasts of the field. And we'll, we'll pause there. So I want us to think about this for a second. If you'll notice in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father and shall hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And then verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the word shame here is the same as the, as, as the second word that we have up on the board, eschenus. And this is the word that most often occurs in the New Testament, uh, and most often occurs in this context in the in the Greek Old Testament. We're not going to go into uh, in, into the Hebrew for for these words right now. But the word there is essentially it, it's essentially the same word, askenos. So it has to do with um, with their relationship to each other. So being ashamed, it, it has to do with it, it's not an individual feeling, but rather it's something between the two of them. Okay, but then what happens? Look at verse 7. The eyes of both of them are open, and they know that they are naked. And they sew fig leaves together and make themselves loincloths. 
So they sew leaves together because now they know that they're naked. At first, they are naked and they don't know. And so they do not have shame. And then they become aware that they are naked and they have shame. And so they put garments on. So in this context, when we look at shame and the way that it works. Now remember, in, in, in each of these cases, what we're going to be talking about is the best and the most proper context or the most proper use of fear or guilt or shame. Okay, Because we, we recognize that all of those things can and are abused in all of those different contexts. But in this case, what they're saying is that there's something that stands now between the man and the woman. Okay, the shame is something that is between them. But you'll also notice that it's something that binds them together now. Like the community that they have is created by the shame that they have. They cover that shame over, but the covering is what makes them one. Okay, so there is a way of reading scripture and seeing that shame functions in that way. It is something that stands between us. It's something that, that differentiates us from each other. But it also is something that is binding them together. They're bound together by this, this shame, this understanding of who they are. And now, in, in a sense, they understand who they are in relationship to each other. That not only does the shame function in that way, but then the, the Old Testament is going to use that as a way of discussing how we're supposed to relate to God. That there is something that stands between us and God and that shame. But also, we have to remember that shame is not, I did something and I, now I feel something about it. Okay, That it's actually something that's there. There is something physically actually between the two of them. And it separates them and binds them together. And so in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament talks about the way that God's people relate to God, when it talks using the shame language, that's what it's trying to do. It's God using one of the ways that human beings enforce and reinforce cultural values for God to then meet people where they are, for God to encounter people within that context, and for God to reveal himself to them in a way that they are able to understand him. So he reveals himself to them through that lens of shame. But he also reveals himself to them through the lens of fear. So look again at verse 16. In verse 16, in 15, it says God put him in the garden, and then the Lord God begins talking to Adam. He puts Adam in the garden, and then he starts talking to him. He says, I want you to eat from any tree in the garden that you wish, but do not eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, uh, or else you will surely die. And then he creates a helpmate for, for, for Adam. He, he, he goes through the entirety of creation looking for something for Adam and unable to find it, makes something from Adam so that Adam can be complete. He makes Adam complete out of himself, right? But then what happens? Look at verse 8. Uh, they, ate, they ate the apple. They ate the apple, right? And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid themselves, Right? Their response to God initially was one that didn't have any sense of fear because God had given them authority. God's power was shared with them. They participated in that. God created and then they gave governance to the things that God had made. But now something has changed. And so their response to God's power is a response of fear. 
So in that context for them in their world, that fear is something that limits the kind of power that they can have, which is a good thing. Fear, power is one of those things that we in the midst of, of our, of our own individualness and corporateness is something that limits the kind of power that we have access to. And when we stop being afraid of power, usually bad things happen. Look at Kane's line. Almost always, <laughs> from the very beginning, when somebody is no longer afraid of the power that they have, bad things start to happen, right? It goes, you have Kane's line that goes right into the demonic kings, and it goes right from the demonic kings into uh, idol worship and human sacrifices. Like, this is what happens in human history when people stop being afraid of power. That fear is there to not just, it, it's not a response of, eek, God is scary. It's a response of, we know what power is supposed to look like, and there is a sense of awe, but there's also a sense of trepidation. It's both of those things together. And that those things, when they are done correct, again, this is, this is still one of those things where, where what often happens is that people with power use fear to keep people from gaining more power. And that's, of course, exactly the opposite of the way that God behaves, right? What, what God is constantly doing is inviting people to participate more in himself again and again to, to, to entrust to human beings more and more of who he is so that we can be his sons and his daughters, so that we can participate fully in who God is. And yet there is a sense in which we say we're going to hold back from that. We're going to approach this cautiously and carefully because we recognize that it needs to be limited. The last one is justice. And I don't think we have to look very far in this <laughs> passage to see, uh, you know, the way, you know, this, this is... What this did is, you do wrong? Right? Well. What did you do wrong? This is exactly <laughs> what God says to them at the beginning. He says, all right, here are the rules. And then he shows up and all of the rules have been broken. And he says, what did you do? It's like, the Bible is not a rule book. There are, in fact, rules within the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Verse 9 and 10. The Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Right. He immediately confesses his own guilt. I know that I've done something wrong. I know that I've done something wrong. And so I hid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It moves us past that, that idea of just being afraid of 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 power like like we have in that excluded middle world it's not just about the 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 power in the world that we're afraid of and trying to grab a hold of but this is something else entirely this is something where there is guilt that rests on me as an individual because of the things that i have done now here's why i want us to pay attention to this okay because all three of these are the way that the world works and we all live in some kind of intersection between all three of these at different moments and different points and different places, not just in our lives, but really in our daily lives. We, we move through the intersections between all three of these, these ways of, uh, of being. Sometimes it's, it's more like guilt and sometimes it's more like shame and sometimes it's more like fear and, you know, just depending on where we are at a particular moment. But here's what I want us to pay attention to. From the very beginning, when God is describing to us the problem with the world that we live in, 
He describes it in a way that we can understand regardless of which of those extremes we happen to be in at that moment. We can be standing right in the middle of it and we still find God reaching out to humanity. And we can be all the way over at the the, the far end of, of a shame culture. We can be in a culture that is so collectivistic that we don't understand our own actions apart from the actions of the whole group. And yet there's God standing there saying, then look at the actions of the whole group. And there's shame and there's something that has to bind us together. And there's something that we need to have in, in our lives that binds us to him. And God says, I have made that way. I give you the Holy Spirit to be the thing that is going to bind us together. It's going to help us to understand who we are. It's going to give us that identity that we, that, that we crave. It's going to be something that, that makes us one. And the same thing over on, on the guilt side, which is where most of us have spent most of our time as, especially as, as, as Americans and, uh, the, the kind of, uh, evangelical communities that we have, we, we have, almost all grown up in we've heard that over and over again this this individual moral culpability we, you have sinned and fallen short of god's glory and yet what is god doing god is meeting them in the midst of their of, it's not it's not as though god didn't know what was happening and yet he still goes to find them in the garden and as we continue to read on we see not only does he go to them in the garden but he then looks at the ridiculous clothes that they've made for themselves and he clothes them properly. And then he makes sure that they cannot hurt themselves further by wandering back into this garden and, and wrecking more of their future than they've already done. And, and again and again you see that he, that he goes alongside them in the midst of this, that he is constantly always restored. Even in the midst of their punishment... He is still setting them up for the end. He, he gives us the promise of the Messiah in the very first thing that he does. The very first response God has to sin is, Cursed are you, the serpent, above all others. Her son is going to crush your head when you strike his heel. Like He gives us the promise of restoration from the very beginning of our sin. In, in that moment, he says, there is going to be a way back. And it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have to face justice, uh, but that it's going to look different because God is going to be with us. And the same thing with fear, right? All of these different, the, these different cultural things that happen, the, these all end up being ways that Jesus reaches out to us. These all end up being ways that God, through the Holy Spirit, is reaching out to humanity and meeting us in those places, whether it's because we, we, have, we, we feel like we're lost in the dark or whether it's because we, we feel like we can't, uh, we, we can't belong uh, in, in, a, in a place or a space any longer, it, like we, we can't have any kind of connection to God because of the things that we've done or because we, don't, we feel like God doesn't exist in, part, in, in, in my own community and in, in our hearts, so we, we can't have a part of that God. <clears throat> goes into each of those places. And we as individualists, we love to talk about God breaking down barriers. But what I was fascinated to see looking back over this passage is not God breaking down barriers, but God making a way in each of those contexts. He doesn't say shame bad. He says, I am with you. And he doesn't say fear is wrong. He says, I am with you. And he doesn't say uh, you know, don't feel guilty. He says, there's a way home. In all of those places, God is meeting those people where they are and bringing them back to him. And so 
when when we look, we, we looked at this very briefly at the end of our last study. But I would like, if you guys have your Bibles with you, for you to turn with me to, this is uh, the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be at the, the, toward the very end, we're going to be in chapter 12. And we're just going to look at the first couple of verses here. Okay. So, last week... I put the, or not at our last, our, the last time we were together, I put up these three Greek terms. Now, one of those Greek terms uh, I have erased and I've replaced it with another one because it only shows up once in the New Testament and we talked about it and, and that was fine. But I don't want us to be distracted. I want us to, to pay attention to this new word uh, that, that I have up here, which is a really, really long word. All right. Oh my gosh. Cataphronesis. All right, we're going to talk about it in just a second. There's a cataphronesis. Okay, so listen to the way that the author begins chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right? When he says that word, despising the shame, he uses this word, cataphronesis, okay? Now, the root of that word is the Greek word phroneo, and, and what that word means is your diaphragm, okay? It's a belly word. What, what it's talking about is, is your, your phronesis is the things that you believe at the very core center of you. Like, this is, this is in our context, we would say the heart, in the Greek context and in the, 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 the ancient Near East, they use the word belly. The word is, the, the Greek word here forms the basis for our word for diaphragm. Like this is the core of your being, what you believe, okay? It has to do with things that are proper and things that are in order and things that are, uh, that are doing the right things and are the right things, knowing at your very core who you are. And then, and then the author of Hebrews says that... And then he puts those three, those four letters on the front of it, kata, which means a negation, not that. He despised it. He despised the shame. He endured the cross and he rejected its shame in an utter way, in, from the very depths of who he was, from the very core of God's being, God says, no, no. To that kind of shame. Now, here's what I want us to pause and think about. When the author of Hebrews is writing this letter, we could we we could have a whole Bible study series just on those two verses. All right, this is so packed with with ideas that are all layered on top of each other that it's it's not fair for us to spend five minutes just talking about this, but we're going to try to. Okay. <laughs> but darn it, we're going to try. Challenge accepted. <clears throat> I want us to think about this. In what ways, look, looking back at this, guilt and shame and fear, all of these are tools that cultures use to enforce and reinforce their values. But what the book, what the authors have been saying to us this whole time is, yes, but. In the Christian world, we say yes to guilt, and we say yes to shame, and we say yes to fear, but... We only say that insofar as it reinforces 
the values of the church. In what ways does the cross of Jesus reorder our values? Think about shame. In what ways does the cross reorder the way that we think about shame? We belong to a new group. Mm -hmm. We belong to a new group. Mm -hmm. We're a new family, we're a new community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's being being called to something that the that the old group <coughs> doesn't have the authority to dis, to determine what shame and honor look like for us anymore. Not only that, but it was the cross was the ultimate tool of shame. Yes. For for the you know, for the power. Mm -hmm. And so God incarnate made it his throne of glory. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, like because your, your your shame is so far beneath me. I'm going to use your tool mm -hmm. to raise me to the highest heavens. Right, because we see again and again in the Gospels when people want to uh, want want to kill somebody for for breaking their moral codes, they stone them to death. They they do this all the time. But the religious leaders, the the temple rulers, chose this for a reason. They they didn't say we're going to kill him. They said we want. The Romans to crucify. Yeah. They they didn't actually follow any of the prescriptions of Torah mm -hmm. that they claim to uphold right. and protect. Right. <laughs> but the writer of Hebrews says to us that he endures the cross, that he embraces the cross and despises, he rejects that way of, of shame. Here's what I want us to what, what I want us to think about. Because I don't think that what the author of Hebrews is saying here is for us to reject shame. I think that he means what he says, that he rejected that shame. That there is a way of shame that is contrary to God's kingdom. In what ways does Jesus embracing his cross also mean that he rejects guilt? There is, you've said in Deuteronomy, Cursed is anybody who is hung on the tree. Mm -hmm. And there was there was the very strong tradition that the right, you know, the righteous man is saved by God from death. Mm -hmm. You know, there for uh, Elijah wasn't killed by Ahab. Right. Moses mm -hmm. gets to die in peace. Mm -hmm. But Jesus falls into the hands of his enemies, and, you know, if you're the Son of God, go save yourself. Right. Yeah, that's the taunt that they level, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Looking at his teachings, he reset the values. Mm-hmm. He lifted our values out of, and in the middle of that triangle, I guess, would be values, and he reset it in a different context mm -hmm. than the world around them. Mm-hmm. Related to relationships and love and, and those kinds of things and not the, not the law. Mm -hmm. It was about restoration, redemption, mm -hmm. um, repentance. Like mm -hmm. there was that path was always open. So it's like he was saying no to how the world uses guilt. It's mm -hmm. a way to cut people off right. wholly, completely, with no way back. Mm -hmm. It's It's that severity and lack of way back that he says no to the most mm -hmm. and it's like no the, you, repentance the way back allowing for restoration that has to be there mm -hmm. you can't just say ah you're guilty therefore you're not us you're out 
Mm-hmm. For good. Mm-hmm. And along those same lines to, to the third end, just because we're we're pressed for time. Uh, you know, the, the last half of the verse. I mean, the, this when when you when when you have this the this worldview of of being surrounded by hostile powers that you're constantly afraid of and that you need to do whatever you can and sacrifice whatever you need to to make sure that you're safe. Jesus then instead becomes the sacrifice who is now seated at God's right hand in authority. That he now takes the authority of the Father for himself and the crucified God is the one that, that gives protection and peace to his people. And not only that, not only before you were or thought you were surrounded by the evil spirits or mm -hmm. the chaotic spirits or the mm -hmm. ones that you had to appease, now we're surrounded by the cloud of saints. Right. Mm -hmm. And we find ourselves in, in that place and that this is that this is who we are. So next week we're going to spend some time talking specifically about what does it mean for us to to understand the things that make us us or make we we. Um, and so we're going to talk about those boundary markers. But what I want us to keep in mind as we're reading this passage, and I, I think that the authors do a good job of this, but I think that it's important for us to reiterate that as we're reading these things, we're not saying these are the ways that the world should work, and so we just need to change the way that we're doing things, but rather we're understanding how the, the world of Scripture thinks about insider and outsider language and understands how that, how that works and how that keeps people safe. Um, and how that have, how that creates community because for us a lot of times we think about that like oh well they're not part of the clique and so it, it it's like ostracizing language but in in the majority world that's not the way that people think about it uh, you you want to have close friends that you can trust and you rely on uh, because that's how we stay safe that's that, that's how we get things done um, so we're, we'll we'll talk about that as as we get into our discussion next week but before we Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.